Welcome, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True and creator and co-host of the Inner MBA program. It's my delight to share with you this exclusive Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO podcast series. The series is built from interviews that Soren Gordhammer, co-host of the Inner MBA, and I have conducted over the past three years. The series features over 40 transformational CEOs from around the world, running a diverse range of companies, all with a shared mission, that business be a force of collective good. These conversations are rich and meaningful, open and candid about personal failures, discoveries under pressure, and breakthroughs. They feature leaders who have faced enormous workplace challenges and have emerged as inspiring wisdom figures, bringing a depth of real-world insight to our work together in the Inner MBA. I've gleaned so many practical ideas from these conversations, and I trust you will too. Thanks in advance for listening, and please let us know about your experience with the Inner MBA Socially Conscious CEO Podcast Series. It is a real pleasure to sit here with Bill. We've been friends for a dozen years or longer, longer. maybe. Um, and we, well, I'll tell you about him and then how we met. Um, no, I'll go backwards. We met because I got a contact from Bill. He'd been listening, a student of meditation and mindfulness and listening to talks that I gave or reading things. And then he contacted me at one point and it was back in 2008. Uh, when the economy was melting down and you said, um, you know, it was possible that you would lose your grandfather's company and the entire industry on your watch. And in fact, Ford was the only major company that had the foresight to actually put money in the bank, to borrow a lot of money so that you didn't have to get the government to bail you out. Right. So you were saying, you know, this makes a, a little wee bit of stress. <laughs> It's light and trouble sleeping. What you got? Is there anything that can help? And we started this conversation about what meditation practices would do. But then as I got to know you, what I understood is that you've been, I'll call it a servant leader for decades. And to me, what that means is that your, your role as a leader has been to look for what's the best good that you can offer to the people in the company, the people it serves, and to, to the world. And that meant, among other things, that you were one of the earliest major figures in industry to stand up for the climate. We'll just use that as an example and say we really have to pay attention to what's happening to climate. And what happened is you got attacked and slammed for a good 10 or 20 years or more. You, it was not a small thing. This is kind of an amazing thing to know 
and have that sense of integrity that I know this is important and these are my values. And in some way, people at Ford love this man because they trust your values. They know you Thank worked you. on the assembly line and I know what you care for. Um, and Thank that you. just, you know, I mean, that's the whole game in some way. Well, thank you, Jack. Um, thank you very much. And, and I, I guess it's my turn to introduce Jack, right? <laughs> Who needs no introduction? But, um, you know, I mean, I, so if I could do, I won't do it justice, so I won't even try. But Jack is, as you all know, um, you know, probably the leading American Buddhist uh, and, and also scholar. But much more than that, uh, he's someone who's touched people's lives uh, all around the world. Uh, famous people young people, people with horrific problems, uh, people with, um, they can't get out of their own head. I mean, Jack has touched every one of those and, and really many, many of them. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very, and, but what's most remarkable about Jack is he's also very much in the moment. You can talk to Jack about the NFL game that happened yesterday. You can talk to Jack about, you know, what's, in, what's new in music. Um, and then very easily go right into um, some very you know deep conversations about inner exploration, Buddhism, uh, mindfulness, and all those things. And so he's he's just a, a a remarkable person. And and as Jack said, we've become good friends over the years. Um, and actually, Jack, you know, I I. I Probably the only time I've ever corrected you. Um, we, I, I, we, I, it was when I read your book, A Path with Heart, um, and I called up. Um, I love the book so much that I called information uh, in because it said the author lives in Woodacre, California, and I called the information. And I said, "Hey, do you have a Jack Cornfield?" And they said, "Yes, we do." So I called you, and um, and so. Uh, and then I then I came so up so old fashioned. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is before Google searches and everything, and so this is uh, many years ago. And and so I went up to Spirit Rock and and met Jack, and um, but uh, and then we've become you know I, I really admired him, and then uh, from that point on, um, you know, we started to deepen our our relationship and deepen the work we've done together. And um, and I must say, I you know I've been running Ford for. 25 years now. And there have been some just, you know, really, really ugly times. And Jack, one thing he always told me was, I know you want to take care of everyone else, but if you don't care, take care of yourself first, you're not going to be doing anybody else any good. Um, and that really was so important to me because um, I was so frazzled uh, and didn't have any way to manage it. And you've you gave me those tools, and um, and it wasn't just meditation. It was the questions you asked. It was the kind of the the things you made me think about. Um, and you know, and by the way, it's been a lot of fun too. Um, I've really enjoyed it. It has. Well, and when you say this, um, it goes back to a conversation we were having earlier about what does someone need who's in the business world. Here we're talking about the inner MBA. You know, and you are a guest lecturer at MIT or at Wharton and so forth. Mm -hmm. And noticing that people in the old days, it was just, let's get our education. Let's get that the economics, let's do our case studies, let's run a business. And that doesn't work anymore for people. And I'll just say something kind of personal. So when I left 
Dartmouth College and I had a good Ivy League education, philosophy and mathematics and history, and I was doing pre-med, you know, lots of good science. And then I switched to Asian studies, um, which became my new industry, whatever. Um, and went into the Buddhist monastery, I learned about forgiveness. No one taught me that. I learned how to deal with my own anger because my father was violent and I didn't know what to do with all that rage. Um, I learned how to do, deal with my own longing and desires or fears. No one taught me any of that my whole inner life. It was as if I had the second half of my education that was missing mm -hmm. then. And now what you're saying is for business school or business leaders, there's a different education that's needed. Well, there has to be. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, it, business is the easy stuff. Um, I mean, you know, w once you, and, and I must tell you that, you know, in all my time at Top of Ford, uh, if I were to think of all the most difficult things I've had to deal with, they're all people. Uh, and it's, and it's people, and it's wrestling with, interpersonal relationships, it's wrestling with, you know, um, and, and rather than get angry at them, you, you have to try and understand them and where they're coming from, and you have to be empathetic. And when you do that, often you, what you get back is, no one's ever treated me like this. Mm. Uh, and and, and that's, that's a shame. Um, but I do think that, you know, to, to be successful in business, you have to have values, you have to stand by those values. Um, and you can't compromise those values, but you, but you also have to have the tools to do that. So wh what do I mean by that? Well, it's what you've been teaching me all, all these years. It's, you know, you, you have to, I mean, whether it's meditation or uh, other forms of self-exploration, um, you, you have to have a way to uh, shed the stress to, um, and to really dive into what's important. So it's it's really a two pronged thing. It's 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 a set of values, but then it's also, for lack of a better term, a coping mechanism um, that people have to have, and ultimately that will, I believe, result in much better interpersonal relationships, which all of business is really about. It just is. I mean, you know, people. It's not about return on investment or you know um, whether we launch this product or launch that product. I mean. That, that's the easy stuff, um, and, but it's it's all the other stuff that will give you the stamina to see it through. Um, and I think you see so much burnout now, um, and particularly with MBA students, um, because there's great pressure on them. Um, you know, often it's financial pressure, often it's pressure from home to succeed. Um, you know, and, and it's their own expectations of, you know, they're going to these schools and then they're told, well, now you need to go out and be great. And they're like, wait, how do I be great? What does that mean? Um, and so I think that um, the business schools in general desperately need this kind of program. And most of them don't have it. Yeah, I was invited to go to Stanford Business School some years ago um, by one of the assistant deans and by a, a senior faculty member to do an event for the entire student body on the very things that we're talking about and particularly about well-being and vision and what matters to you. And so I said, well, I can't do that alone. And I called in some favors, which was the CEO of Monsanto at the mm -hmm. time and the COO of, I think, Mattel. And mm -hmm. a, so some pretty 
notable level business leaders. And Rachel Remen, who's a physician, who's worked for years at Stanford and elsewhere to, to humanize medicine and medical curriculum. And so we did some meditations together and people talked about, the, the leaders talked about what they learned. And then these people, so smart, so good, who are all there, like at the top of their game, you know, they're the cream of the crop. And the dean had called me and he said, you know, the problem is that they come in and they're raring to go. And by the time they've, they're ready to get in a corporation, they've lost something. And I said, well, what have they lost? He said, they don't know who they are. They've lost their values. I said, so you want something like soul retrieval? And the dean said, yeah, that's what we're looking for. It was a very funny conversation. So at the end, you know, the, the, the ones on stage would say, well, all right, I made $150 million. I wasn't happy. Somebody else raised their hand. You know, I made this. I wasn't that happy. And the, the, the look on the faces of people saying, well, what makes you happy? And that was a question. It wasn't that they didn't want to do good. And it wasn't that they didn't have a, a tremendous creative impulse. But they didn't know the, the human cost and the way to navigate it in some way. And I would say, Jack, too, that if, if employees have that, and, and they also um, believe in the values that you set forth as a leader, um, it makes a much better company, a much stronger company, uh, as well as stronger individuals. And, and I can give you a very uh, vivid example. In two, you, you referenced uh, earlier the 2008, you know, the financial crisis, and you know, our two two big competitors, General Motors and um, and Chrysler, went bankrupt, and we were, you know, hanging on the very edge. And um, interesting time because I got called to the White House and asked if we would take either GM or Chrysler, and I told President Obama no. <laughs> he wasn't very happy with me, but um, but but I but I, I I said that because I said, you know, if um, it's too much. We'll, we'll, we'll go bankrupt too. Um, if you're asking us to take on, um, you know, more obligations, you know, but anyway, um, you know, it was interesting what happened then. And this will always stick with me <clears throat> forever. Our employees simply wouldn't let us fail. Um, and it didn't happen at GM and Chrysler. I was told at uh, Friday night at five o'clock at GM and Chrysler, you know, you could shoot a cannon down the hall and not hit anybody. Um, our employees were working um, till midnight, one in the morning. They were working all day Saturday, all day Sundays. They weren't sure they were going to have a job on Monday morning. They didn't get any overtime. Um, but I was flooded with emails and letters from employees saying, hey, Bill, don't give up. We can do this. Now, those were from the, the, the factory floor. They were from um, people in lower management. They were, and I... I got hundreds and hundreds of them. And normally those messages are top down, um, but they were coming to me from, and it just showed me that the love that people had for our company and kind of what we stood for. Um, and, and they pulled us through. I mean, they absolutely pulled us through. And as you point out, we didn't go bankrupt and we didn't take the bailout. And it was because of, I think, the, the way our employees felt about our company. And if I could just give you one more quick example, it was, okay, so now fast forward, COVID hits. Um, and without even asking, our company stopped making cars 
and immediately uh, we started making gowns, respirators, uh, masks, uh, uh, ventilators, and nobody asked for, for permission. Nobody asked what it was going to cost, um, and we just did it. And you know, and I was so proud. And then somebody said, well, "Should we have asked you?" I said. Absolutely not, uh, uh, because because that shows that the values are actually being lived and believed. That you know, when we're needed, we respond, um, and you know, to whatever is needed at the time. And it, you know, and so I, I I think that if you have values and people understand them and they embrace them, and, and values are different than culture. Um, cultures change all the time inside companies, um, and there's and culture is what's needed to deliver the business. So if you need to go faster, you need to be leaner, you need whatever it is, that, that's, that can be part of your culture. But the values sit above that. And I think most companies don't either have it or don't talk about it. Um, and, but we do, we talk about it a lot and we encourage our employees to live it a lot. Um, and we, I mean, I'll stop in just a second, but I started something called the Volunteer Corps uh, because, which allows all our employees around the world to go do whatever they want to do to help the world. It can be something small like, you know, help your local school, you know, with a playground, or it can be something like disaster relief in Turkey when the earthquake hits, but um, that they can all do. And I, the reason I wanted to, do, that I did that was I noticed that whenever we had a sign up for some volunteer thing. Not only were all the slots filled, but people were writing below it, hoping mm -hmm. that they could. And I thought, well, okay, let's make this, let's institutionalize this. Let's not just, you know, ask, do it on ad hoc. But it's something that it's, it's real, it's enduring, and people want to feel part of something that's more than a paycheck um, or more than a stock option or more than, you know, uh, if, if it's just money, it's, it's not good enough. Um, and you know, it's something that I, I hope we, ne we never lose. So what you're talking about also um, resonates within Buddhist teaching what's called right livelihood, yes. which is the livelihood that not only doesn't cause harm, but somehow uses the energy of your life, your incarnation, to bring benefit in four ways to yourself, to your community, to, you know, the environment around mm -hmm. you, all those kind of things. So here's a... I'm going to up-level the question and yeah. make it harder because you wrestle with hard questions. Um, a lot of current capitalism doesn't have good social values mm -hmm. and, and doesn't have really guard, you know, guarding rules mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. um, I was looking at a book called Capitalism in a World on Fire by Re Rebecca Henderson from MIT and mm -hmm. Harvard Business School. Um, and it was basically what we know saying that if you don't have built in, as you say, a le lever of values, it will undermine the whole society. So how do you vision, this is a little bit like the bodhisattva intention. If you go to the sort of heart of it, if you take a bodhisattva vow, it's I will do the work or whatever I do, but my intention is to be of benefit, mm -hmm. not just for myself, but in the weave that we share. What do you see about capitalism at this point? Well, it's interesting because, you know, and I'll get to that in just a second, but, you know, corporations in general, I mean, as much as I like to believe, and I do believe that Ford is an, a good company and dedicated to doing good things, 
I know somewhere right now, somewhere in the Ford world that some bad thing is happening. And it just is. And so the question is not how do you ever, ever prevent that from happening, but the question is how do you deal with it when you find it? Um, and what are the uh, set of expectations that you have uh, for you know, discovering bad behavior. And that bad behavior can take all kinds of different forms, right? I mean, it can be financial malfeasance. It can be personal bad behavior. It could be, you know, lying. I mean, it could be anything. Um, and it, it happens and it's because it's people and people aren't perfect. Uh, and corporations certainly aren't perfect. But it's then it's then it is, okay, you must bring it to light and you must deal with it and you must deal with it in a way that people are satisfied with the way you deal with it. Um, and so... Um, and I think that kind of gets to the question, which is if you do that and you do have values, you smooth the rough edges or, or off of capitalism in terms of the bad behavior, right? But um, we have morphed capitalism, I believe, into, and it, it happened really in the last 20 years, um, into a a power grab and a greed grab um, yes. that kind of didn't exist um, when I was younger. And maybe it did, but it was it wasn't celebrated. It's celebrated in the last twenty years. I mean, it's and I, I, that really bothers me. It's you know how much money did you make? Um, you know, and who do you, and who did you have to step over to do it? Um, you know, and it's it's and I think that part of capitalism is terrible. And it's and it's um, and I don't want to pin it on Silicon Valley because that wouldn't be fair. But I think it was um, exacerbated by uh, a lot of the early success that happened in Silicon Valley and the, the the quick money and the stock options and the competitiveness that you know and and it it just it it really became our our you know in some ways the American uh, business business ethos, which. It shouldn't be. Um, but so I don't think in capital, because when I look at other forms of economic activity, I still think the, the roots of capitalism are the best thing that we have. But it does require then society to build around it safety nets. It, it requires society to build compassion um, uh, so that, you know, that the money made with capitalism is deployed in a, in a thoughtful and, and kind manner. Um, but, you know, when I look at other forms, you know, they all have big flaws too. And in some cases, bigger flaws, but I don't like what capitalism has become. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that this next generation will pull us back from that. Um, because I think the values that a lot of the next generation have are much closer to maybe what the great generation, the World War, post-World War II generation had in terms of being more selfless, less about me, 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 and what I can get all the time. Yeah, some of it's, it's grown in these last decades. I've watched it too as an outsider, but <clears throat> the kind of economics that came from the University of Chicago and Milton Friedman and so forth, whereas the premise is, your goal is to make as much money as possible, yep. and it doesn't matter how you, more or less, how you do it. Right. And then the outcome is that companies get destroyed or communities can get destroyed. No question. At the same time, the energy of 
of um, uplifting people to say, you can make a difference. You can build a business or work for one and make some. That's tremendously empowering. So how do we how do we navigate those? And part of it, as you said, is actually it's not just a reform of capitalism, but it's the society's values and that we have to actually say as a society, we will take care of our children. Mm -hmm. We will educate them in ways, you know, that are necessary, that produce a beautiful future um, in spite of the fact that it will cost everyone some money. Um, And so somehow we have to relearn. And I was telling you in the meditation retreats that I teach, one of the good things is that the youngest generation who come um, don't want to learn meditation as an interior practice alone. Okay, I can manage my stress. I can forgive what I need to. I can live with more, you know, loving kindness and so forth. They don't want to do it unless it's also connected with, will this help with the climate crisis? Mm-hmm. Will this help with continuing racism? Can I learn something that's not apart from the world, but that actually these are press, weighing on my heart and I want to learn how to do both in some way. And so you're sort of positing that, but I haven't seen it. I'm hoping you're right about the next generation. Well, I, I think you just said it, though. They are asking those questions, which prior generations weren't asking. And I think that's very hopeful, um, that if they can have the inner journey and connect it to some greater societal need, that's wonderful. I mean, if that is the way the next generation is coming at it, it's, it's very different. Um, and it, I, to me, that gives me a lot of hope. Do you see that at Ford? Is there a new generation coming saying, we want the company to succeed and we really want to be a force for good in the world somehow? Yes, but I don't think that's just generational. I actually think everybody wants that. Uh, at, 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 uh, I don't, not just at Ford. I think everybody wants to feel like they belong to something that is greater than themselves, that stands for something that they're proud of. But what I think is different is the young, younger generation want to be involved now. They don't, they, it's like, okay, I, I get it. Now tell me how, what I can do and how I can do it. And, and we have to, you know, so we spend a lot of time figuring out how do we enable them to go do these things. We, it was really interesting. We had a, um, I, I also have this group um, called 30 Under 30 that I put together with 30 employees under the age of 30. And I spent a year with them teaching them um, kind of, for lack of a better word, how to be a philanthropist. How do you, how do you do things in the community that really make a difference? Well, it was really interesting because um, the first class, I brought them to uh, like the traditional things like United Way and, you know, Salvation Army and all those older groups. And when I say older, I mean old, they've been long established. But interestingly, uh, these young people, uh, at the end, they all present to me and, and they have the the, the, the sponsoring organization with them too. And it was really interesting when the Salvation Army people, uh, and the young people came that, uh, the, every group, whether it was United Way, Salvation Army, and all the others said, we learned way more from them than they learned from us. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we're having to change our entire model because, um, our average, uh, you know, volunteer is, you know, 68 years old, um, and we're going to be out of business in, you know, 10 years if that continues. And so we are, you know, these young people have taught us that we are completely out of touch. Uh, even though our mission was good, 
we, it's not enough. We, we need to, we need, and what we really need to do is create a sense of community, which we haven't done. Um, and so it, it really, to me, was, it, it was fascinating that very first class that we did with those 30 under 30, because it showed me that the young people have so much to offer, um, but they're not interested in joining in a traditional way a group like United Way or, you know, Salvation Army, unless they can radically change it. Yes, yeah. So one of the things that you do, and that I also spend a lot of time doing, is mentoring other people. <clears throat> you mentor the leaders at Ford and then the, the ones under them, or even mm -hmm. the 30 under 30. Um, and you're really interested in some way in how do you... And if you're a leader and you're doing an inner MBA and you want to get in business, it's not only, you know, how do you lead well, but how do you bring the best out of other people? It's one of the things that I've learned to do and love doing because I look at them and I see this person has some gifts. You know, my yeah. my old friend Maladoma Somme, who was a West African shaman, medicine man who had a couple of PhDs from the Sorbonne and I think from Michigan, um, said that in the Dagara people, we believe that every child who's born carries a certain cargo. And I love this metaphor because cargo, it's like the cargo ships that ply the rivers in West Africa. And their job on earth is to deliver their cargo, deliver the particular gift that was given to them. Mm -hmm. So when I mentor people, as much as asking what they're interested in or how they're doing it, I'll have them close their eyes and say, you know, visualize yourself some decades now. What will you regret? What will you, or what in you, what image in there, you know, do you remember that inspired you? Do you still have that? And I start to look and help them look at what their passion is and so forth. Um, and then I say the, the, the most important thing is you can do this. Mm. That the, probably the most important mentoring moment is to see their value and to say this is possible. So I'm just talking about my sense of mentoring. What is yours? Well, I, you... now I actually would like to keep you going on this because um, you do mentor so many people and you mentor, you know, young people, old people, and also prominent business people. Um, and, you know, and that's something that, you know, that there are a lot of egos. There are a lot of different um, myths that people create around themselves. Um, and... So I, how do you how do you pierce that, um, and how do you bring out the best in them? Because some of the people that I know you work with, and you work with a wide variety of of, of people that have kind of made it, um, whether it's in entertainment or business, you know, there are a lot of big egos that go with that. Um, and you know, one of the things that you do is challenge uh, people so well. Um, but how do you how do you get through to them, and how do you turn them if they're not where they should be. Well, one of the things, I, I'm not sure whether I should say I'm sorry to say it or not, because I'm not completely sorry. <clears throat> In Tibetan Buddhist practice, there is a practice for those who are sincere in which you pray for suffering. You say, grant that I will have enough suffering that it will cause mm. me to open the great heart of compassion. Interesting. The people that 
I do work with, and I'll, I'll name one who's a mutual friend just because some of it's public. So we did something in Wall Street Journal or whatever, mm-hmm. like John Donahoe when he was the CEO of eBay and PayPal, now he's the CEO of Nike. Um, when he talked to me, he was desperate. (laughs) There are others who call me and it's for my industry. That's great. (laughs) I mean, I don't wish it for them, but it's like, okay, it's not business as usual. Things are falling apart or, you know, I have this many billion dollars. My marriage is falling apart, which I get that as much as anything, or my kids have gone off the rails or something. Help. Um, and that becomes actually um, a turning point in that person's life. It becomes a gateway mm-hmm. to say just what we're talking about. It can't be business as usual. And so my, I actually have to come to terms with what made my marriage, you know, dissolve and, and, and brought the bitterness. And, and how do I resolve that now with my children? Or I have to figure out, I've been working in a way these 18 hours a week, and nobody's happy. Right. Um, so I get the game, you know, when it's halfway through and there's been a lot of injuries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's right. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I do when I work with people, <clears throat> I listen to the story because we all have our stories, you know, and mm-hmm. they're mostly not true, but that's because most stories aren't true. <laughs> they're only partial, right? Um, but I'm more often want to uh, have people close their eyes and turn inward and say, um, where do you feel that in your body? Um, when they, um, what emotions come up? Okay, now stay with it. What memories come? Oh, well, when I was 12 and my father, you know, stormed out and I never saw him. What stories are associated with it? So we start to explore that way. And then... What resources? What's there? What have you learned, you know, when you're about to, you know, feel like you were in a collapse or get enraged? What have you learned? And then I can add a little bit of medicine. But actually, the, the real mentoring is to listen and help them find that they have the medicine. They've just been looking in the wrong place, basically. You know, it, it is remarkable, and it's funny, you mentioned John Donahoe, because the way that happened was he saw our Wisdom 2.0 uh, conversation, and he called me up, he said, can you get me in touch with Jack Cornfield? And I said, uh, yeah, I think I can. Um, but um, a- anyway, um, but, but, you know, Jack, what's, what I think was remarkable, though, is, you know, and all these people, that, you know, they're big egos involved. I don't mean John, but I mean, I know a lot of the other people you work with, and you know, and it's it's often I, I, I'm always amazed at your ability to strip that away at least momentarily um, from people. Suffering does it. It's not me. <laughs> yeah, but but most of those people aren't used to admitting that they're wrong or have done anything right. wrong or that it's not their fault or that you know because they are the superhuman and how could I possibly, you know be one that's either suffering or causing suffering. And I, I think, think it's in 12 step. Is it called like the gift of desperation or something? <laughs> yeah, it's but, it, but yeah. it's the first noble truth in Buddhist teachings. Right, right. That that you have to recognize that there is suffering, not that life is suffering, but that it has it, but that that's not the end of the story. If you get stuck there, you get stuck in your reactivity and your fear, but the fact is 
that that's just the first noble truth. And what it says is, this is the first part of the story, but in fact, there's a path to the end of it. There's Mm -hmm. a path out of grasping, out of fear, and so forth. You can find an inner dignity um, and a well-being, and it means letting go of some things to become a better human being Mm -hmm. in some way. I can interrupt for a moment. Please. I think that first noble truth and what you've just illuminated, Jack, is fascinating if we look at what is happening at Ford through that lens. You know, it doesn't, if we get stuck, that's the problem. If we don't do anything about it, that's the problem. But if we're working from so there will space, be, there will be suffering. But that's what Phil so said. There's always going to be problems. No, there is. You're looking at being a part of you know, solving global climate change. But the, being a part of the solution around this crisis. No, no question. And this is a very, this is a really kind of beautiful way in to a conversation around it. But you know, cor- corporations are not usually beautiful places. And, 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 the, and the reason for that is um, there are tough decisions that have to be made and people's lives are impacted. And all you can do is to try and minimize it. And so, for instance, we're changing as a company. You know, we're a 120-year-old company. And, you know, we were built on, you know, the internal combustion engine and the assembly line and all that. And that stood us in good stead for many, many years. Well, then, you know, and I I remember my own journey, you know, from when I was growing up as as a child, everything was great about the auto industry. People wrote songs about it. You know, the Beach Boys were singing about it, um, you know, and it was um, and it was all good. And then, you know, when I got into college and I started to realize that, you know, maybe it wasn't all so good. There was, you know, pollution and, you know, it wasn't called global warming back then, but it was an environmental impact. Uh, you know, there were safety issues. There were there was congestion issues, you know. Um, and it really opened my eyes. And so, um, anyway, I, you know, resi- I almost didn't join because of that. And then I thought, no, if I can actually go and make a difference, I- I'm determined to. But as we're changing now into a very different kind of company with electrification and being less hardware, more software, um, people's lives are being impacted. And there's no way around that. And I, and I hate that. It's the worst part of, of the job. And you, but you can't avoid it because um, com- part of compassion, I believe, is doing the right thing for the most number of people. Um, but that doesn't mean everybody. And, and that's the part that, you know, that I think can't, probably never will change in corporations. It's the part I hate. And, um, but it is inevitable because change is inevitable and change is good actually. Um, but with change comes upheaval and with upheaval comes, um, some pain for, for some people. And I, and so, um, you know, I think, and I've thought about this a lot, you know, is there a better way? And the short answer is, I don't, I don't believe there is. I think it's, it's just the way business is. Every business, even the best businesses, have to continue to reinvent themselves, and that will have an impact on people because somebody who was perfect for this model, all of a sudden their skill set doesn't really fit into this new model. Um, and all you can do is to try and be as compassionate and to um, listen and to try and help them then land on their feet 
um, wherever they might go. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, ne- it's a never-ending thing, and it's, it's tough. Um, it's the hardest part about business. But you, uh, but you can't wish it away. Um, it's there. When I listen to you, and, and I, you know, you're expressing something very clearly, and there's a lot of pain in it. There it's is. Not, I also hear you simply talking about leadership, because in lots of other arenas as well, leadership requires making decisions because there's limitations in resource or there are people mm-hmm. not operating in the right way and so mm-hmm. forth, making decisions where some people will be lost or disappointed, even though it's the best decision you can make. So people who are in an inner MBA program, right, you want to be leaders, baby? <laughs> Get what you're signing up for, because you're not going to sleep well on some nights, and it will tear a little bit at your heart it does. if you're trying to be compassionate. You also have to feel that so that your decision comes from a place of understanding rather than a place of cold economy or something. And that's what, you know, I think most leaders, if, you know, I, I'm not big on advice because uh, I think most people have to sort of sort things out for themselves. But, you know, but if I were to give advice to, you know, a, a group like this, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, you know, you have to have values, you have to have compassion. Um, but you have to make decisions because no decision is a decision. So you can't, um, you know, it, it, and you must move forward in the business. And, but I would also say this, the, the mistakes I see most leaders make is that they surround themselves with yes people. They don't know the employees down at the shop floor level. Um, and they don't know their families. I mean, one of the things that I love most about my life is that, you know, I, I, <laughs> At age 65, I'm still playing ice hockey, but I'm playing in the Ford Hockey League with all, with our employees. Um, and, um, and I love that because I get to know employees that I wouldn't get to know otherwise. Um, you know, my kids all played in the little leagues and all the, uh, towns we were in and with our, with our employees at all levels. And, you know, you get to know the husbands and the wives and the siblings and, you know, and then though, if something happens, and you know those people, yeah, you really feel it. Yeah. Uh, you really feel it because they're not just numbers. They're, mm-hmm. they're family members. I mean, you know, in, in, a, in a broader sense. I mean, they're, they're part of your broader family. And so, and I, <clears throat> I mean, I cherish that, but it makes it harder too. And I, I guess the, the one thing I would also say for last bit of advice is keep your old friends uh, because um, the friends that you, you know, that you've known for years, uh, and you don't have to, but, the friends that don't want anything from you in business and will tell you when you're being an idiot, um, they'll tell you, um, you know, that they think you're absolutely wrong on this because so many leaders just are in an echo chamber. Um, and it's debilitating, not just for them, but for the whole company. The well-being. Yeah. So two things. One is a little bit of a non sequitur, but it's about advice because you said, you know, you don't give much advice. When I was in my first clinical class doing PhD, and um, I had this grizzled old psychologist who ran uh, Gardner State Hospital in Massachusetts, and he'd been a you know psychologist therapist, therapist forever. And he leaned forward. He said, "You're going to be in a position of responsibility. <clears throat> People are going to look up to you. They will really listen to you. You're going to affect their lives." So you have to be tuned in. You have to really be careful 
because they respect you. So be careful what you say. So we all are sitting there kind of trembling. And after a little while, he laughs. He says, but don't worry about it too much because they really do just what they want and they don't listen to you much at all. <laughs> and it was, very, it was really great help, you know, say, yes, there's advice. But I think really we learn from each other. We don't learn so much from the words. As you know, as a parent, they're watching you so closely. Um, what I've learned, which is quite relevant to what you're saying, and part of the way that we've changed our teaching is we mostly do team teaching. Um, and in the early years, I think that it kind of kept us on the straight and narrow, which was a little harder in my 20s and 30s in all kinds of relationships. We'll just leave it. But um, there's some way in which we learn more from each other than we learn from, you know, the sage on the stage or the top down, what you're talking mm -hmm. about, isolation. Mm -hmm. And I know even in teaching relatively new people, if I pause and there's some dilemma, you know, how do you work with um, anxiety when all this is happening in the culture and then your kids are sick and you whatever. And, I'll, you know, one of the things I'll ask beside checking in is to say, all right, well, what have you learned that helps you? But then I turn to the group and I say, what have you all learned that helps you in this situation? And there is a kind of collective wisdom that comes out that's better than any of us individually could say. And I know that's true in leadership in general. You're describing that. Um, so it's, it's almost, um, it's like you're missing the boat if you don't have that. Yeah, and I think, you know, business is hard enough. And if you don't have strong interpersonal relationships in business, then it's so isolating. And frankly, it's no fun. Uh, I mean, look, business should be fun, too. We're not even talking about fun. But, you know, um, you know. I mean, there's there's a lot of fun to be had in business, but it's with people. It's not you know it's not fun sitting in your office you know staring at a spreadsheet. Um, what what's fun is to you know create cool ideas with your coworkers to sort of get into the what ifs of of the you know of the conversations, and then you know and getting to know them and getting to know you know what makes them tick and all that. I mean, it's just in that you know in that you there's a lot of organic fun that can come of that and. You know, I think, you know, business is hard. Um, and if you can't have those interpersonal relationships and you can't work as a team, and if you don't have fun, then it's just all going to weigh too much on you. Um, and it probably isn't going to be a happy thing for you. Um, and nobody talks about fun in business, um, which, you know, and, and, and look, I'm in a really tough business. It's a really tough business. And it has been for a long time and a lot of competitors and Lots of change and lots of you know low margins and all those things, but um, but it's also if you know I, I always look to have some fun in my day, um, and I think everybody should. Um, but it comes from the teams. It doesn't you individually. It's you know it's hard to have a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And what's the what's the point of your life if there isn't some well-being woven into it? It's right. not meant to be a grim duty, yeah, exactly. whether it's work or. Some people take meditation as a grim duty. I go to therapy and I work out at the gym and now I'm going to meditate. And it just doesn't make it happy. Right. And then it doesn't actually serve you in some deep way. So here's a different question, which has to do with intention. Um, one of the most powerful things in Buddhist 
psychology is setting intention and then also repeatedly setting intention. So um, you can be in a difficult conversation or, you know, a difficult stuck place and you can take a few breaths and ask yourself before you jump in with your answer or try to defend yourself or whatever, you can say, what's my highest intention inside? What's my best intention? And when you ask, at least when I do, if I, for example, might have some little conflict with my beloved wife, Trudy, it could happen. But anyway, before I just try to be right about it, I'll go, what's my best intention? And then I realize, I love her. I, w I want this to work out. I, wa I want to express my whole tone of voice changes in, in about five seconds by remembering that intention. And I remember going into Google in the office of one of their main vice presidents and so forth. And it's all open floor plan, but we were in this little glass room. So the doors were closed, but people around. And I lit a candle to make it just to create a different space that it wasn't your usual meeting. That's all. It wasn't a big, we didn't make a big Buddhist whatever nonsense. Of it. We just lit a candle and took up half a minute to quiet down. And then I asked the group, you know, this was, I don't know, for was it a design or some forward-thinking group, what's your best intention for what we're about to do? What's your... People got quiet, and once they set that intention, it raised the bar, it changed the conversation. We weren't just trying to solve a problem or get along. It was like, how do we do something that had an uplift to it in some fashion or other? So I wonder what you know about that in terms of... <laughs> I know you've told me to do that, and I have a tough time doing it. Uh, it's, uh, it's part of our relationship is, uh, you know, it, it, I do tend to react before I set my best intention, but um, I'm working on it. Yeah, uh, you're, the, you're, the, yeah. you're the only one in the room that would ever do that, of course. But uh, no, you're right, and I, I think sort of hand-in-hand hand, um, comes the notion of empathy, trying to, you know, I always try and... Um, take the other person's point of view and, you know, e even if I violently disagree with them, there, there, there has to be some good in that point of view. And I, and I you know, and I try and do that um, with our other executives or with anybody that, you know, it, at work that I'm working with is, you know, why, why are they doing this? Um, and, you know, it, and because the thing I think is really important in business, and this is something that I, I do say all the time, and I suppose this is the right intention, is you can attack the idea, but don't attack the person. Mm. Um, and that's very hard to do. Um, it, it gets, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, discussions get very personal very quickly. Mm. And or if somebody doesn't like the idea, well, that guy's an idiot, or that guy, you know, has terrible intentions, or she doesn't know what she's talking about, and that's wrong. Um, you know, it's it's the idea, and because if you can't attack the idea, you ne you never get to any honest discussions. But you you know, if you do attack the person, then it's over. Um, and but I see that in business and probably in life, but but certainly in business, you know, over and over and over again, and so I do say all the time to our team, you know, attack the idea, don't attack the person. And I'm marginally successful in getting that, that concept across. Um, you know, I think, I think, but it's, it's important to get that out there. 
Um, and I, so that is an intention that I do have. Um, and, you know, and it, it's, it's hard for, even for me, but I say it all, all day um, <laughs> to, to myself. And look, there are going to be times where there is somebody you simply don't like or somebody you simply don't think is coming from the right place. Okay. You know, not every, I mean, you can be empathetic as you want, but at the end of the day, you may conclude this person is, you know, not a great person or, you know, doesn't have the great, the right motivation or whatever. It's or okay. destructive in ways. Yeah, exactly. That you, okay. That, then that you, it's then, very, very painful. Then you deal with it. I don't want to be Pollyanna about it. I mean, you know, it's, but, but you need to start with that, I believe. So when you look at leadership outside yourself and look at, wise leadership do you have models are there people that you that you reflect on and say yeah this is i admire or there's a lot to learn i'm not looking for perfect leadership because nobody's that well you know it, it, it's interesting there have been a lot of people that i admire over the years and frankly you know i look to you all the time but um uh but but you know in business there have been you know, many people, when I think back, that I've admired, and but nobody that I want to emulate. And the reason for that is I think everybody has to have their own path. And, I, and I've seen, a, I've, Jack, I've seen this too, where um, I've seen at Ford business leaders try and copy another business leader. It, it's just phony. It doesn't, you know, and I think most people have a great BS detector. I just do. And so em- employees pick up on that in two seconds, that if you're being phony or being someone you're not, or, and so, um, so I, I've never tried to pattern myself after anybody, um, but I feel like I can get wisdom wherever I can take it. So, um, you know, I, I, I do, I read a lot, I listen a lot, I, I ask a lot of questions, and I've come across some remarkable people in my life um, that I, that I value. But, but, so I don't hold anybody up as my role model, if if, if you will. And maybe I, that's odd. I, no, I, I, I respect that a lot. Um, you know, there's Warren Buffett. Okay, you're not going to be Warren Buffett. No, and, and, be. and he has his strengths and I have mine. And exactly. If I and tried I, to be him, it would work. I was sitting on stage somewhere with a bunch of industry leaders, just for the fun of it, um, you know, the lamas and mamas and swamis and so forth, all these celebrated. <laughs> and the thought occurred to me, not the most noble thought, who's more enlightened? Where do I fit in the <laughs> pecking order? <laughs> you know, as if that, even the word enlightenment is really a confusing word that I don't use much anymore. I'd rather say, who's more loving? Who's more, you know, compassionate? But and then I realized I can't be like that one or that one. They may be really good. They're also really weird, but that's another <laughs> conversation. <laughs> but I can't, couldn't do that, whether they're more or less or whatever. I, exactly what you're saying. I just have to be myself and just be the best that I can. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to leave your comments on this interview here on the platform. And if there's a socially conscious CEO that you'd like us to interview as part of the Inner MBA, please let us know at innermba at soundstrue.com. <laughs>